You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Cabo Blanco, released February 1st, 1981. It was written by Morton S. Fine and Milton S. Gelman, based on a screen story by Gelman and James Granby Hunter, based on a story by Victor Andres Catina and... Jaime Comas Gill, directed by J. Lee Thomas and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. So, a screenplay based on a screen story based on a story. What mm. is a screen story? It's uh, somewhere in the middle. I don't understand. I'm so lost. I feel like screen story was something for probably a TV movie. And Maybe. And they needed to punch it up, make it a little bit more exciting for a script, for a film. Maybe. Okay. The cut we watched was the Kino Lorber Blu-ray of the North American cut, which is actually missing a full 30 minutes. Oh. From I the, wouldn't oh. say missing. <laughs> it's, it's missing 30 <laughs> minutes from the original European cut. The Kino Blu-ray also features a 27-minute making-of documentary written and directed by Stephen Peck, son of Gregory Peck, who appears in the film alongside producer Conrad Houle as a crewman of the HMS Orion Star, he calls mm-hmm. it. Actor Clifton James, whose name I was excited to see in the opening credits, is sadly completely missing from this version yeah, of the film. Yeah, I, I was looking for him. <laughs> I was like, where's Jay Pepper? <laughs> where's my J.W. Pepper? But he's not there. The official title of this film is Cabo Blanco, all one word, although it is listed in many places, including IMDb, as Cabo Space Blanco. Though in the film, despite all the letters being in a row, the B is capitalized when the title comes up, but then so is the O at the end of the word. <laughs> so I don't think it's Cabo Blanc O. <laughs> so it's mostly just a bad design choice. Though some people have the same problem with the Ghostbusters title, whether that's one or two words. What do you mm. think? Uh, Ghostbusters it's is one word. One word. I think in most places, and the popular consensus seems to be that it's all one word, but when the title comes up in the first film, the title card breaks the word into two lines. Mm. So it says mm. Ghost and then underneath it, Busters. The film was shot on location in Barra de Navidad, Jalisco, Mexico, a fishing village near Manzanillo. The local authorities announced plans to rename the city Cabo Blanco in the film's honor, but eventually downgraded the publicity stunt to naming one street Calle Charles Bronson. (laughs) That's nice, I guess. That's quite a downgrade from naming the whole town after the movie. I wish they would have called the town Charles Bronson. <laughs> we named like Missouri. Yeah. Charles Bronson, Missouri. It's Branson. <laughs> I know, but wasn't that the joke the Simpsons, on the Simpsons, yeah. where they go to Bronson, Missouri, and he's like performing there? Uh, no, everyone is Charles Bronson. Even, even, <laughs> In the whole even, town? Yeah, even the men, the women, and the children are all Charles Bronson. <laughs> 90% of the town's population applied to appear as extras in the film. Only two of the applicants had film experience, and they were a pair of goats <laughs> who had appeared in a documentary three years prior. Did they play themselves? Uh, no, they actually uh, <laughs> they played other goats. At some point, I guess technically they did play it's other goats because yeah, it's yeah, shot were... in Mexico, but it takes place in Peru, so they're playing Peruvian goats. <laughs> but they pull it off. I would the not accent, have known. I couldn't yeah. tell, you know? At some point during the casting process, Kirk Douglas was announced as the star of the film, but it's not clear if he was the Robards or Bronson role. He was probably too old to play Bronson's Hoyt character, but Kirk was too old to play a lot of the people that he ended up playing. I I think I would almost say that Bronson was too old. Yes, I I would say that as well. Uh, The marketing team had a hard time convincing people that this film was not a remake of Casablanca, a misunderstanding reinforced by the similar title and premise. It was never intended as a remake, more as a tribute, though the story did have a basis in reality. Hitler's deputy, Martin Bormann, escaped judgment at Nuremberg, and reports of his death in Berlin could never be confirmed. It has been suggested that Bormann escaped to South America, where he sunk a ship full of treasure off the coast of Argentina during World War II. 
Borman allegedly made a deal with Argentina president and Evita husband Juan Perón to split the treasure in exchange for asylum. The film's end credits offer special thanks to the memory of our friend Alfonso Sanchez Tello, who was a unit production manager who passed away from a heart attack during the production. It was released first in foreign markets, two hours long, and had trouble finding distribution in America until it was drastically shortened, and then Avco Embassy booked it for the end of 1980 and then eventually pushed it to February of 81. So I have a question. Yes. Did it work in real life? You'd have to ask the secret Nazis. Okay. I just didn't know if we had any evidence that he's he lived out his life there with well, lots of Nazis of Nazi did. gold. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know for sure that, that Bormann did, but uh, I think on the record he died in Berlin. That's what, that's what history books will tell you. But uh, he was one of a few people that don't have any confirmation of, of the death other than that it was reported once. Most of them have to be dead by now. Well, for sure, by now, yeah. And they were definitely living off of stolen gold and stuff while they were down there. Apparently, the original shooting script had a subplot about a giant squid that was ultimately dropped from the film. I could not confirm that outside of the IMDb <laughs> trivia, but I hope to God it's true. Yeah. I feel like it must, maybe it's true because of all of the weird close-ups on the ship when everything is rattling around. I guess, like... Maybe they're cutting around a giant squid. <laughs> well, in the opening gambit, uh, there is this the guy says there's a lot of ink in the water. That's true. And I'm wondering if they changed the squid plot to the divers, but they had that they had already shot the ink, so they so kept it there in. was a giant squid that was protecting the treasure. I, I don't know. And then they changed it to ninja divers who never have to surface. But like either way, like it's that particular scene is cut so weird yes. and cut so close. Like you mm-hmm. cannot tell what is happening in the action because of the way it's cut. And I feel like it's a it's a trim down because they must have been avoiding showing something. I, I couldn't find any evidence that it was even in a version of the script other than this IMDb trivia point, mm. let alone that they shot something oh, for it. But enough. it would be really interesting because I totally forgot about the, the ink in the water yeah. that he mentions. He's like, oh, there's some dye in the water. Like, what would be the point of that other mm-hmm. than to imply some sort of a, a sea creature? We open in black and white and fade to vibrant color from the POV of a plane quickly swooping low over the beaches of Cabo Blanco. And and this isn't the only time that we'll do that, which is right. frustrating. I think it only happens twice, though, but it's still a weird choice. Yeah. Maybe you've heard of Cabo Blanco. Then maybe you haven't. It's a remote fishing village off the coast of Peru. And when I first got there, it certainly hadn't found its way onto any map that I knew of. Nevertheless, this is the edge of the world where legends are born. I was part of one, and I'd like to tell you about it. We crossfade to Lewis Clarkson, as played by Simon McCorkendale. Ugh, that name. I hope that that's a code name. No, it's the coolest name ever, is what it is. (laughs) His ship, the HMS Orion Star, is anchored five miles off the coast. He's the one telling us this story. The title card reads, Cabo Blanco, Where Legends Are Born. And then we get Peru, 1948. McCorkendale reminds me of a young Peter O'Toole here, though I also read that Michael York was considered for the role, and that makes perfect sense, yeah, too. Yeah, that fits. There's a few moments where Clarkson sounds exactly like Basil Exposition to me. He even looks like him. Is McCorkendale, was that the name of the the character that let them stay in the barn in uh, The Long Riders that was played by Crazy Ralph from... Uh, oh. I don't remember. I could find it under the Kong Riders. Let me spell this correctly. It's either Buck West or West Buck. Buchanan. <laughs> uh, West Buchanan played Corkendale. Corkendale? No, not... sorry, Mick Corkendale. So it is McCorkendale. Yes. So he has the same name. Because I, I, when I was reading it, I was like, that name sounds so familiar, but we haven't had Simon McCorkendale in anything yet. So that's why it sounded familiar is because... Buck West played him in uh, Long Riders. Or West Buchanan. I already forget. On the deck, Clarkson talks a fellow crewmate, Johnny, into an enormous diving bell, which is then lowered from the side of the ship. They start pumping classical music down to the man, seeking the historical shipwreck of the Brittany. Like, Britain-ish. 
<laughs> it's Brittany. <laughs> Leave Brittany alone. No. No. <laughs> That's what the, the giant squid is saying to people. <laughs> Suddenly, the diving bell is surrounded on all sides by a team of divers and a lot of dramatic flourishes in the music, though the man in the diving bell never seems to see the divers around him. Correct. They do come upon a shipwreck, but Johnny and the bell makes the determination that this ship is over 50 years old and couldn't be the Brittany. At the same time, the team of divers are rocking the bell back and forth, and Johnny is sending a distress signal up to his ship. He thinks they're pranking him when they claim that the ship is steady. Johnny notices some kind of dye in the water around the diving bell. Clarkson decides to lift the bell, but the divers have already attached explosives to it. Just below the surface, the charges blow, and Johnny is killed. And we cut to Cabo Blanco, again in black and white, but fading to color. The title reads, Her First Day in Cabo Blanco. See, now, at this point, I looked up more information about the movie to see if it was based on a book. Because I was like, what is with this like chapter yeah. selection? Uh, but I don't, I don't, I didn't find any proof that it was based on a previous book or story. It was the different episodes of the television show. Yeah. <laughs> Police Captain Toredo stands at attention as Marie Claire Alessandri disembarks from a bus and collects her bags. Toredo gives one of his men a signal to collect her and take her to the station where he meets them later. Toredo demands her passport for inspection. He reads out loud that Alessandri is from France and asks her business here. I had business in Lima. My friend said I should see the coast before I leave for France again. We cut to a bar hotel run by Gifford Hoyt, as played by Charles Bronson. He asks his only customer, Clarkson, what their ship is up to out in the bay. I told you, charging the Humboldt current. I thought Mr. Humboldt did that about a hundred years ago. Oh no, not completely. Hoyt pretends to believe this cover story when Marie Alessandri arrives, accompanied by the officer that brought her to the captain earlier. When Hoyt sees her, we get a quick flash of a hand holding a photograph of her. Despite their apparent history, she introduces herself, suggesting that she is using an alias. She asks for a room, and Hoyt's employee Pepe, or as Bronson continually calls the guy, he's like Peppy or something like yeah. that, Pepe. collects her bags and leads her to a room. Clarkson asks why she's here. I'm looking for someone I used to know. Toretto drives up to an enormous mansion in the mountains to meet with Gunther Beckdorf, as played by Jason Robards. I love Jason Robards, but he is doing a shit German accent. Oh in my this god, movie. it was. It's like why even so bother? Bad. Well, not only it's it's bad when he's doing it, but also he drops out of it like mm-hmm. half of the time he's yeah. talking. <laughs> this isn't that long after world war ii yeah so we're we'd like to assume that he probably would have a very thick german accent yeah like ridiculously thick <laughs> yeah i love the guy too i feel bad that he took this role when he couldn't do a german accent <laughs> yeah well i don't think he he was being very discriminating about the roles he took this year or last year Toretto informs Beckdorf that the Brits are leaving town soon and a young French woman has just rolled into town from Lima. Beckdorf retrieves the small photo of Alessandri we saw earlier from his desk and Toretto confirms this is the woman. Back at the hotel, we see Alessandri wrapping up a shower and calling to Gifford with the nickname Gif, even though the creator has repeatedly explained it is pronounced Jif. <laughs> She asks where he got the name, since his is apparently also an alias, and he says he snatched it off of a dead jockey. Was he a winner? Well, he was having a good streak until the horse fell on him. I don't get it. I think he literally just took it from a jockey. Like, that wasn't a joke? No, I think that he was out picking horses to race with, and this guy died on the track, and he decided to use that name when he left the country. Yeah, because he's in hiding. That's what we'll come to discover. Okay. Jif asks who she's here to see, and she says that she's looking for her lover, Jacques. We get a quick insert of injured Jacques crawling up the beach, bleeding, and Jif denies he was ever here. I'm assuming a lot of these inserts are coming from that missing 30 minutes. Yeah. Oh. For sure. These cuts were so confusing to me. Yeah. Because they were 
They're very jarring. They're jarring, and they're they're not long enough to like really help help you understand what's going on. Yeah. But at the same time, they seem like they they, they seemed like they were leading to this bigger story that we mm-hmm. never really get visuals of. So yeah. it makes sense that it was cut out of the extra thirty minutes. One of them actually scared me when I they was, cut to the machine gun. Yeah, because yeah. I was looking down at my, I was making notes, and all of a sudden it's this machine gun fire. I was like, "What? What I miss?" I look up, and it was, it was it gone. Cuts back. Yeah, it was. I was like, "Wait, <laughs> what, what just that? happened? Am I what? having nom flashbacks?" <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, I, I mentioned it for the 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 underwater section was cut really weird and, yeah. and close up and jarring and and really frantic, and these cuts are really frantic and jarring, and I just. You were oh. not in love with the editing already. Oh no, I w- I didn't like the editing at all. But like the ca- and the camera moves, you thought were interesting. Yeah, I like the camera stuff. They they were off putting to me. You see, and and I would have been okay with these quick random cutaways if towards the end of the movie, when we're told the full story, we see the full story. We flush story. out that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and I was like, okay, now I get those little glimpses now that I've seen it all and I have more context. But we never get it. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, it's, there's no payoff yeah. to these to these little clips. That's what I mean. Yeah. And right after Jif tells her that Jacques was never here, she shares a postcard that Jacques sent from this hotel. Are you really gonna call him Jif? Yes, I from am. The whole thing. Uh huh. Okay. Just just want everybody to know that he really does call himself Gif for the whole movie. Right. And and I think that is the worst nickname. Just call him Hoyt. You should go by Hoyt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not not Gif. I kept writing Griff. <laughs> <laughs> she saw his ship, the Brittany, set sail from Marseille, and she never saw him again. The crew were mostly German, but Jacques was working undercover. Obviously, if the Brits are looking for it underwater, then something must have gone wrong. She followed the postcard here to find him, and we get the first of maybe three dozen quick tracking shots toward Charles Bronson's face to over-dramatize whatever he has to say. <laughs> It's like a dolly zoom. Like mm-hmm. it's not. But it's every time he has a one-liner. Oh, I know. Every time we look at him, like every time it's a single on him, we are we are moving in on him. But it's just, it, it just it's comical. Yeah, <laughs> he starts seemingly with the truth that he found Jacques washed up on the shore, shot but alive. Hoyt says that he stayed at the hotel until he recovered, and left a note and a parrot behind before skipping town. He also robbed the cash register on his way out. But that's all right. Everybody needs a little getaway money. What aren't you telling me, Give? He tells her that there's a bus out of town leaving at 6 p.m. and she should be on it if she's looking for Jacques, because he ain't here. Clarkson sees Alessandri coming downstairs into the bar at night and asks to buy her a drink. At the same time, Toretto speaks with a girl at the bar and tells her to get close to Clarkson. This is Rosa, mm-hmm. and she works basically as an agent of the police chief. Right. Toretto approaches their table to ask for Alessandri's passport again, not because he needs to check it for any reason, but because, probably on Beckdorf's orders, they don't want her leaving the country again. Alessandri rushes to Jif to announce that her passport has been taken again, and he chastises her for not taking the bus he suggested. He heads to Toretto's office to find out why they're holding her documents, and he kicks in the door to find Toretto having sex with two women who quickly hide under the blankets. I don't really understand... Uh, gifts motivation to help this girl i think she's an ex-lover i think but not of gif not of his <laughs> i thought she was no, no. she's a, a ex-lover never of met. Jacques. they never met until she showed up here i i didn't get that impression i i mean i don't they they never say that they knew each other prior to this moment there there's some weirdness and i see where you're coming from because but she when, knows his real name and he knows hers. Like when, when he says his name, she's like, oh, where'd you get that name? Like, that's not the name I knew you by. I, I but, thought the implication she, was that they had a romantic came, past. When she comes in and says, I'm looking for somebody that I used to know, my first instinct was, I'm talking about you. But then she talks about Jacques and then that storyline continues. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So she's just looking for Jacques. She doesn't know this guy. I don't understand her motivation through and through, even up into the end. Well, I think she's a little bit lying about Jacques. I I don't think she actually cares at all about Jacques. Sure, that's she, fine. But I don't. What's but why does Gif, Gif, Jif, Gif? I'm not gonna be able to get it right now. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> why is Gif 
motivated at all to help her. I, I, I don't, they don't seem. Because that's what gifts do. They just keep moving. <laughs> In a loop. <laughs> he can't help himself. It seems like Jif has something he's holding over Toredo's head to get what he wants. But Toredo informs him that it's nothing compared to what Beckdorf has. I get the impression that really all he has is that he's paying bribes. Right. Like a lot of bribes to the police and to through the police to the the minister of the province but if he if he doesn't have if he doesn't have what he's looking for throughout this movie where does he get all his money from running the hotel and the bar oh you're saying that gif is i'm saying jiff pays a lot of money to operate this place here yeah oh because he's talking about beckdale paying well no okay i mean beckdorf obviously has money too Toretto says but Beckdorf has a better one. He has a shooting license. And I can't allow you to interfere in his business. Which essentially means that Beckdorf has been granted permission from the the minister that he basically has a license to kill. He can do whatever he wants. Okay. Um, because he has this deal with the minister that they're going to dig up this shipwreck and he's going to split this yeah. crazy billion dollar fortune with the guy. Yeah. Why doesn't Beckdorf know where the ship sunk? He explains that later. Is it because of the compass thing? Is yeah, it the compass thing? Right. the compass, the compass thing. Jif makes the decision to see Beckdorf himself, since he hasn't had the pleasure. Toredo asks what would happen if Beckdorf orchestrated his deportation back to America, and it sounds like he would face the death penalty there. Jif is stopped at a roadblock outside Beckdorf's compound, and it seems Beckdorf is expecting him, and tells his team to allow Jif passage. Beckdorf greets Jif in a bathrobe and the two walk together to a patio. They're followed closely by a beautiful woman named Hera in another bathrobe. She seems intoxicated and repeatedly trips over herself on her way to them. So we're we're about 20 minutes in, and I still really don't know what the plot of the movie is at this point. Yeah. Right. Like, I know some people were looking for a shipwreck, but it seems like these other people aren't involved with anything with that shipwreck. Yes. Uh, or And don't seem to have any interest in it. So we have another character who's looking for a guy, and we have another character who runs a bar who seems oddly drawn to helping this one person. But so far, there's no indication of what the story is for this movie. Yeah, but it comes together. Beckdorf says nights are not her best time, and then he says, but you know that, which is the only vague hint we get here that Hera is also an ex of Jif's. Yeah, that I agree with. Yeah. I'm not so sure about Alessandra. Alessandri? Jif advises her to go home to Lima before Beckdorf throws her to the whores, but instead she takes a bottle from Beckdorf to continue drinking elsewhere on the compound. Jif comes right out and accuses Beckdorf of having something to do with the exploding diving bell and asks if he intends to just continue bombing the ship when it returns. And Beckdorf doesn't deny much, but he's just like, oh, is it coming back? (laughs) They told me it was leaving. Seems like a weird strategy to get the ship to leave to kill some people on it yeah well i I mean if you destroy their diving bell then they can't they have to leave to go i know but i feel like (laughs) if you are um because i assume that they're navy or you know some sort of military from yeah i think they are the royal navy because he says it's, it's hms so yeah so if you are out and about and some other country blows up part of your ship i feel like you stick around and investigate yeah but it was ruled an accident but That's nobody on that ship could would would think that that was an accident right so but they're not in their jurisdiction they're in they're in their jurisdiction they have to adhere to their laws and their due due process waters but they're only five miles offshore which is still technically peruvian territory i think oh, okay it's well known in town that Beckdorf also has boats searching for the Brittany. Jif demands that he return Alessandri's passport. I don't want that girl to die here like the Englishman. So it sounds like Jacques did not survive his visit. Or did he mean no, the guy in the I, bell? No, I'm pretty sure when he said Englishman, I'm, he meant the no, Navy yeah, officer. Yeah. Okay. Beckdorf says that he can't control when and where people die. And to die in Cabo Blanco? There's always that colorful cemetery on the beach. I'm glad you think it's colorful, because if anything does happen to that girl, rest in peace. Yeah. (laughs) As the camera slowly pushes into him. 
we get another one of these shots tracking up to Bronson to make the already overly dramatic line read ever more dramatic. As corny as the camera work has been, I have to say that I appreciate that the director is at least trying to make every shot interesting. The camera is constantly moving around the characters, but always tracking our steady cam, so it's at least fun to look at. It's not like it's like garbage handheld footage. Or or they don't lock it down. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't, because I feel like camera moves should be motivated, not moving just for the sake of moving the camera. And sure. I don't feel like these were motivated to help tell the story or emphasize what's happening in the scene. No, probably not. Jeff returns to Alessandri empty-handed, but offers to take her most of the way to Lima by boat to a town called Concepcion, which is a name we heard in our previous episode for the housekeeper in The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Once she gets to Lima, she can request a replacement passport, but she's worried about getting caught and held in a Peruvian jail on the way. She isn't interested in this escape plan. And the next day, Toretto announces a certification that John Frederick Baker, the man in the diving bell, died by simple drowning and not what witnesses described as an explosion. Clarkson stands to offer a forceful objection, but he can't prove anything because police cremated Johnny, which Toretto assures them is standard procedure in this area, kind of like how in the county where Motel Hell takes place, they happen to have a law that says it's okay to bury people within 24 hours without notifying the next of kin or anything. The death is entered into the record as a simple accident, and later in the local market, Jeff meets with Bustamante, a fisherman, who just learned that the oysters will be back in the bay soon, and if he can find a single pearl, he would cease to be a financial burden on anyone. I don't, I don't know if a single pearl is worth that much. Depends on the pearl, I guess. Well, and big his, his lifestyle in Cabo Blanco probably doesn't require much. Yeah. Jeff suggests he stick to fishing. When Bustamante's son shows up, he's Toreto's assistant. He's the one who brought uh, Alessandri to the station earlier. And he shares with them the verdict on Johnny's death that it was an accident, or it's been ruled an accident officially. Clarkson races down to the docks to threaten Toretto with an appeal on his judgment to a higher authority. And Toretto looks over Clarkson's shoulder and gives a nod to a literal hatchet man who takes a swing at Clarkson until Jeff smashes him with a box over his shoulders. And then Clarkson tosses the man down into the water and everybody laughs like it was just a silly prank. <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, and they just go on like yeah you were almost just murdered yeah and they so, just walk like 10 feet away to his boat to start drinking don't it. you expect to potentially be murdered again yeah well, I, I think Toretto made his point and and they just accepted that yeah jiff invites clarkson to drinks on his boat where he lets it slip that he's caught on to clarkson he knows that he's mi5 or six clarkson changes his humbled current story to a claim that he's working with a private enterprise seeking petroleum deposits. Jeff points out that all the equipment on their deck is salvaged stuff, and that Beckdorf is after the same thing. Clarkson finally admits that he's here for the Brittany, but claims not to know what was on board. He's like the crew looking for the Titanic and raised the Titanic. It's like, they just told us to check here, but they didn't tell us what we're looking for. We cut to Bustamante diving for oysters. Unfortunately for him, he ventures too far into what Beckdorf considers his territory, and those ninja divers appear again to murder him under the water. We see a quick phone call between Toretto and the provincial minister of Concepcion. The minister shares that the Americans have inquired about Mr. Hoyt. Toretto counters, reminding the minister of Hoyt's generous bribes, and the minister suggests that maybe this inquiry could be used to leverage more from Hoyt essentially throwing him to the highest bidder who's going to pay more for your safety you or the americans yeah. we get a quick moment with toredo's woman rosa having successfully worked her way into bed with clarkson though this never really pays off they yeah. never get any information out of her maybe that was also in the missing half hour toredo heads to the hotel bar and gives jiff the opportunity to increase his bribe and he offers a single squeeze of lime into his drink on the house <laughs> that's his <laughs> he's like here you go how's that Alessandri comes down the stairs and Toretto tells her that she can expect her passport back soon, but she turns away from him to drag Jif to the dance floor where they slow dance to Nat King Cole's The Very Thought of You. To do the little that everyone ought to Which we last heard sung quite poorly by the acapella group in Mad Magazine's Up the Academy. 
<laughs> the little ordinary things that everyone ought to do. Clarkson notices a commotion outside, and Rosa tells him that the torches mean someone has drowned. Jif's drunken ex stumbles into the bar and takes a seat in the corner so she can't fall over. Beckdorf has kicked her out, and she doesn't know where to go. Everyone rushes out to see who drowned, and it's Bustamante. Teredo pretends it was an accident again, but Bustamante's son says that his father was a better swimmer than he is. Back at the hotel bar, Hera... Well, sorry. Okay, so why did they attack him? Because he was in the bay that they're looking for the ship in. Yeah. I get that, but unless they know where the ship is, which they don't... Uh, he obviously isn't seeing anything there. Are they just... I, th- I think it's to dissuade people from going in that area. Yeah. That's it? It's just a, like a warning shot? We killed this guy? Is just a warning to others? Yeah, I mean, they're, those people seem loaded up and ready to shoot at anyone who comes into that bay at any hour. Uh, okay. It just seems unnecessary. <laughs> Rain or shine, clothed or unclothed. Yeah. <laughs> The Naked Army. Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, they're just going for it. I guess I guess you would. Yeah. We'll get to that scene, though. <laughs> Back in the hotel bar, Hera, the ex, is teasing Jacques' parrot. She flirts with Jif a bit, and then he leaves with Alessandri. They walk along the beach, where Jif admits that his crime in America was murder, but that's as far as he explains it. She asks where he found Jacques, and he tells her that the survivors of the shipwreck on the Brittany were rowing ashore but were mowed down by machine guns before they made it to land and this is where you got startled by machine gun fire yeah quick insert he tells her again that even though jacques survived the day she won't see him again we cut back to his room at the hotel where he's flicking a deck of cards at her one at a time and she's batting them away with the back of a hairbrush so is jacques alive no I don't, I don't think, think so. so. I thought no. I thought we see a flashback of him dying on the beach. I think he's injured, but I I I think the only reason you would tell her you're not going to see him again is that he knows that he's dead. Okay. Because otherwise Because if he was an agent, why wouldn't he go back to his agency? Yeah. And if he knows where this treasure is buried, why would he just I'm just going to fade into the distance even yeah. though I maintained the secret for a long time. Painstakingly trained a parrot spoiler <laughs> and all anyone had to do was listen to his apartment as he's screaming and yelling yeah the no god the- damn it <laughs> <laughs> two one two <laughs> jesus christ she finally confesses to jiff her real business here 22 million dollars on the Brittany in gold the germans stole it and you're going to help me get it because you know where it is you do She knows Jacques wouldn't let the secret of its location die with him, and he must have told someone he trusted. She assumes this means Jif. Jif refuses to find the gold if it means risking his life. Pepe starts pounding on Jif's door to announce that Clarkson has stolen Pepe's canoe, intending to sneak into Beckdorf's compound at night. His men notice Clarkson immediately and begin firing at him. But, But also, his compound is on a hill. Is he going to canoe up this hill? <laughs> I think he was he was going to try and like come at it from the furthest possible. I get corner. it. I get yeah. it. He's coming around the backside or something like that. But like it's still up a hill, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of walking. You're going to have to Fitzcarraldo that thing all the way up the hill. <laughs> he just can't. why did I bring this up here? Yeah. <laughs> I just left it in the water. I'm an idiot. His men notice Clarkson immediately and begin firing at him. He abandons his canoe and swims to shore. We get a title for the third day, but yeah. maybe I missed the second day title. <laughs> I, I, that's what I thought too. It was like, oh man, did I look away and miss the second day? Because the because fir- we had her first day. Yeah. I think it might it might have. It's in the thirty minutes. Been in the thirty minutes, and they just didn't think <laughs> about it. <laughs> oh, that's great. In the morning, Clarkson sneaks into a thatched roof hut and finds two guards completely naked with two women. There are scuba suits hanging from the ceiling that Clarkson at first mistakes for a standing guard. He tiptoes around them and discovers a box of explosives and steals a small piece. The naked men wake up and grab their guns to begin shooting at Clarkson as he uh, books it for the tree line. They're actual guns, not their... Yes, <laughs> they're real guns. Because this is my rifle, this is my gun. This is for fighting, this is for fun. Yeah. What? <laughs> it's from Full Metal Jacket, you know. Oh. Or also the Marines, probably. I haven't uh, I haven't seen that or is that the, no is that the Marines or the Army that's just the Army 
Uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember. It's it's some sort of trained armed forces chant. Yeah. Okay. It's about penis. It's about a penis? It's about their penises. <laughs> the naked men grab their dicks and begin shooting at him. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted one of them to just hit the explosive that Clarkson stole. So he just like explode in the jungle and they don't understand. He's <laughs> like, I got him. <laughs> they do hit him, but he manages to bleed while he runs. Just as they catch up to him at the base of a tree, Jif shows up and drags a huge dried palm frond between the legs of one of the henchmen, like a giant handsaw against his crotch, and the guy collapses in the dirt. Yeah, he doesn't get back up. No, he doesn't. He's dead. (laughs) Dead from ball saw. (laughs) He's like the guy in Blood Beach. Yeah. Jif turns to beat up the second approaching gunman and then carries Clarkson out of the woods. Alessandri arrives at the Beckdorf compound. She intends to bargain with him. Beckdorf says that Jacques installed a magnet beside the compass to lead the ship off course before it sank, and it's not where the Nazis thought it was. He owes the minister a share of the treasure in return for amnesty, but he can't make his payment because he can't find the ship. So, so again, this is where I question what her motives are. It. It seems like, okay, she's looking for Jacques, but then, no, she's not interested in Jacques. She's she interested, just wants the treasure. She just wants the treasure, and she wants to use Gif. But now, she's going to Beckdorf. It's like, okay, I can't make a deal with Gif. I'll make a deal with Beckdorf right. about where the treasure is. And her plan is to use Gif to, to seduce the, him. Yeah. Yeah. To give the information to Beckdorf. Alessandri says she knows where it is and that she will give the location to him for a share of the treasure. Resting in a bed at the hotel, Clarkson hands over the explosive sample he collected to Jif, and it ties Beckdorf to the diving bell attack. The bar has emptied out on account of a curfew being called in town, but Pepe tells Jif that Alessandri is waiting in his room. She's been looking for him all day. She has promised Beckdorf the location of the sunken ship. I don't really understand her plan here. Yeah. Because she says that she came straight back here to the hotel and that if Jif was there, they could have left together. Yeah, see, and and then she immediately confesses the thing that you you expected her to hold secret. Right, that I went was, and saw Beckdorf and yeah. told him. Yeah, I feel like maybe her plan was if he, if she came to him immediately upon selling him out, would be to use that as leverage. It's like, look, Beckdorf is going to torture you and kill you to get this information. But can't she still say that now? Yeah, but... If it had happened earlier in the day, I think she felt like she would have had time to, you know, make him pivot and be like, okay, let's go get this gold and get out of here. Yeah. And so her plan was that they would take the ship, but they can't take the ship now because there's a guy with a gun standing on it because there's a curfew being called in town. And apparently his boat is like the best place to stand during curfew. I don't know. It seemed a little weak. But maybe that's all the bargaining room she had left was... Oh, uh, we can. if I do this, then maybe I can leave town with some of the gold. Jif tells her that he doesn't know where the ship is, but he understands that Beckdorf is probably on his way here now, or his men are. He puts Alessandri in bed and watches out the window as Beckdorf's soldiers empty out of trucks into his bar. The soldiers are ordered to check every room, and Bustamante's son is in charge of checking Alessandri's room. He sees Jif sliding the cover over the ventilation shaft back in place, but he lies to his superiors that Hoyt isn't in the room. Hoyt's not in his room. Beckdorf's second-in-command kicks his way into a room where he finds Hera, half unconscious on the bed. He starts choking her against the wall, demanding Jif's whereabouts, until Jif pops out of a ventilation shaft and just suddenly and repeatedly bashes the man with a giant metal box. Yeah, and then a drawer. Yeah, he pulls the drawer out of the dresser beside him. Um, but I couldn't even tell what this first thing was that he's hitting him. Yeah, it was some piece of metal. But uh, but there's this enormous decorative tribal face hung on the wall with spikes all around it. And Jif is able to shove the guy against the wall. And then he flips a bed at him, yeah, which that, knocks the big face down. The big face? Yeah. Did you notice the eyes were made of shark mouths? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't see <laughs> they, that. They're actually just open shark jaws that's 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 awesome (laughs) but whatever the thing is it falls off the wall and uh we hear the what sounds like the man getting impaled on something (laughs) or or getting squished by something it was a very very (laughs) wet sound yeah and then you just hear the guy like choking like like a one of those bloody chokes (laughs) 
and I believe that this is also something missing from the European cut that there was specifically one minute of like extremely violent fight mm. scene and I mm. think that was supposed to be here and we're we cut away from it rather abruptly Jeff ushers Hera out of the hotel to the doctor next door that's looking after Clarkson in secret the guards quickly find them there and they interrogate the doctor outside the door where Hera and Jif are hiding. To save his friend, Clarkson shouts from the next room over for fresh bandages, and the soldiers rush in to arrest this patient because they recognize him as a wanted man who they tried to kill earlier. Another of the soldiers circles back to Jif's room, where Jif kicks open the door as hard as he can to knock the soldier out, and then makes a run for it. Jif sneaks into the police station, where an officer is making coffee, and Jif places an order. <laughs> White sugar holds a cream. <laughs> Jif collects a rifle and marches into Toretto's office to put it to his head. He gives Toretto permission to call Beckdorf and gets him on the phone. Jif tells Beckdorf to come to his place alone for the location of the Brittany. Beckdorf takes the bait and heads alone to the hotel. Jif needs to get from here to the hotel, so Toretto gives him an ultimatum. Everyone must see that you are my prisoner. You have to take that chance. So he agrees to stand at gunpoint as Toretto walks him back to his own hotel. Right. Why did this have to happen at the hotel? Why couldn't they just say, Meet come to the police station? Or, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was to get that Casablanca big reveal. Well, the parrot is at the hotel. But I don't think that you need to be with the parrot. You definitely do. Okay. Toretto walks Jif to the hotel at gunpoint, but apparently Jif stupidly gave him a gun with actual bullets in it. Everybody's seen the gun. You can put it away now. You are still in my custody. Let there be no mistake. There goes your soul right down the toilet. As they enter the bar, Toretto locks the door behind them. Jif asks about Beckdorf's plan for the gold, and we get the huge twist. The treasure on the sunken ship isn't precious stolen gold, but precious stolen jewels. <laughs> Does that make any fucking difference at all? Apparently the only important difference is that it's worth a lot more than $22 million, but you could have just said a different number for the gold. Yeah, and, and it's not just jewels, but it's it's re- presumably religious artifacts. Sure. Yeah. We learned from Toretto's reaction that he also thought it was gold until they blurted this out. Beck, the dwarf man dwarf, starts <laughs> whipping out examples of treasure even though he doesn't have the treasure yet. So I don't know where he got these two pieces. Well, I'm assuming he, he took his pick while he was on the ship. Maybe. But, uh, you know, one of the things he holds up was is a piece of the true cross. Yeah, like he first he has a giant sapphire ring, and then he has a small crucifix that's made from fragments of the of Jesus' crucifix. Yes. Oh. He's saying he carved it himself from a bigger spoon. <laughs> i mean did did jesus jesus's crucifix like like was it a big ticket item like it was like okay we can chop this up everyone gets a piece was it a, some special kind of wood that wouldn't like break down over the course of thousands of years uh, oh yeah you put a put a varnish on it some thompson's all weather seal <laughs> <laughs> jiff tells beckdorf that the message jacques left behind was in code he brings out the parrot and claims that if he recites the correct passphrase to Lefty the parrot, that he will share the coordinates. He tries the passphrase. Lefty, Coco Loco. Oh, come on, Lefty. Coco Loco, baby. God, make a fool of me, gift. Well, damn it, you try. You're wasting time. Burkdorf loses his patience and throws the bird stand into the background. It's a cool shot, actually, because yeah. it's disappearing into the darkness and the bird is, like, fluttering off of it. Right. It, it just worked out really well the way they shot it. because And the colors of the bird complement the lighting in the room. I actually really like this shot, even if it is a person violently throwing a parrot across the room. He puts a gun in Jif's face and he demands the coordinates. Here is where Jif admits that he would never have attempted this alone. And we see a shadow on the wall of a figure seated behind a pillar in the corner. Beckdorf approaches the insanely well, obvious trap. Yeah, and it's not just a shadow of the wall. It's a shadow of the wall that is triggered by Alessandri. Yeah, like she, she, she flips the switch yeah, and, and the fl- light comes on. Yeah, exactly. Like So, so she's a part of this plan? But also, so this light is 
shining in someone's face over there because we're mm-hmm. seeing their silhouette on the wall. But then when we see the person's face, they're completely in shadow. So there's yeah. not a light pointed at this person, even though they're leaving None a big shadow sense. on the wall. <laughs> but Beckdorf approaches this trap and he fires a bunch of shots into the wall next to the shadow. Like he's not trying to shoot the person. He's trying to see if they react. And I can never tell who this person is in the chair. Yeah. Is there a person? Th- there, there's a human there's there. There's a human being there. But I'm assuming it's a dead person, but I don't know who it is. Yeah. Because they don't move when he shoots next to them. This and must, there must have been a few minutes here that got pulled. Yeah. It was weird. Suddenly the jukebox is skipping and Jeff claims that it's about to explode. <laughs> out of nowhere uh he jumps over the bar to hide with alessandri and we hear the warning that uh that he just shouted playing on repeat in case we forget what jiff just said before he hopped over the bar teredo and the dwarf man take their sweet time finding hiding spots but once they do jiff puts a gun to the dwarf's head because they somehow rigged the jukebox to freak out so they could pretend it was a bomb it's it's so weird to me like what it is skipping but, like, why is that an indication that now it's a bomb mm-hmm. and then it just keeps skipping for forever? It's just... Who would have set the bomb there? Yeah. Who Who is this mysterious third party that's also trying to kill Jeff? Well, I mean, I think the implication his... would be that, uh, that Gif and Alessandri rigged it themselves to, to explode. To explode randomly? But, like... Oh no, somebody picked yeah. the song that yeah, we yeah. hate. Yeah, like I, I just don't really understand why he went along with this. Like when somebody's like, it's going to explode. You're like, what? Why was the jukebox explode? Like, is this yeah. necessary, Jeff? Can't we just take the Baja Men CD out? You well, have to set it to explode if someone picks it. And, and it would have been a, a good payoff if the jukebox had been skipping throughout the whole movie. Right. Every time we hear it, like they keep like giving it a whack. Yeah. Um, and But then we would know it wasn't a bomb. Right. The whole time. But I knew it wasn't a bomb because it's ridiculous. I'm still convinced <laughs> it's a bomb. I was like, and my, note, my note is, is everyone buying this? I guess everyone is buying yeah. this. Toreto levels a gun at Jif and Dorf orders him to shoot, but he refuses. Toreto says, Churches, synagogues, death camps, crates of it. Like he's having a sudden change of heart because the treasure is jewels. When before it was gold that had been stolen from Jewish families in Europe. Uh, well, yeah, no, I think, I think, yeah, I think he, the the turn of heart is that this is like this isn't just gold that was smuggled out. This was but gold is it's just as valuable as jewels if they were stolen from people while they were being massacred in a Holocaust. I I agree, but I think that it's it's an easier conscience thing. Like if you have bars and bars and bars of gold, yeah, versus jewels and rings and necklaces with and initials like in them and yeah shit. yeah and or a or a big jar full of golden teeth i don't want your haunted gems <laughs> yeah i just want a mineral everyone knows gold can't be cursed only jewels yes tell that to the fog <laughs> or the pirates of the caribbean yeah jiff tells the dwarf man that he's going to bring him to ecuador where he will likely be deported to germany to stand trial before Jif can even march him out the hotel door, the dwarf man tongues a cyanide capsule loose from his teeth and chomps on it, collapsing in the doorway. The minister is probably bummed to hear from Toreto that Dorfman has suicided since he wanted all that treasure, but he orders the man buried in an unmarked grave to disguise any semblance of cooperation with escaped Nazis. We see Jif and Alessandri dancing in the bar. He says the actual passphrase to Lefty, Cabo Blanco, and the parrot dutifully announces the actual coordinates of the shipwreck. This is dumb for several reasons. <laughs> yeah. One, okay. the fake passphrase is uncomfortably close to the real one. Why risk the bird mishearing you? Two, why in the city of Cabo Blanco would the passphrase be Cabo Blanco? Presumably people say it all the time in yes. this bar. Yeah. This is my problem. <laughs> and three, why share the coordinates with your manipulative treasure-hungry girlfriend who's clearly just going to turn around and dig up the treasure without yeah. you? Yes. Yeah. So Lefty knew it all the time. When my ship returned, he told us all about it. So we located the Brittany, dredged up the treasure, and as far as possible, returned it to its rightful owners. It's like, weren't most of them dead? How well, do you return it to its rightful owners? Well, I guess the families and the churches thereof. But here's also the thing. If if he knew, why wouldn't he have just given, if the British were there to find this ship, and Gif knew that, 
because he seemed to have suspicions that they were looking for Why it. Why didn't he just tell them the coordinates Why didn't he right just off tell the bat? Him? Because he didn't want Beckdorf to keep bombing them. And the legend, well, treasures have their own particular life. It wasn't there, but people came looking for it anyhow. And the legend of the Brittany grew and grew. And Cabo Blanco prospered. And Giff, that's Marie down there in Giff's pool. In Giff's house on top of the hill. In Cabo Blanco, where legends are born. Luckily for Giff, the mansion on the hill was left to Giff in the Dorfman's will. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait. You just you, get his house? You just, how, like, Fucking squatter's rights? <laughs> climbed up the hill? If you, I bet nobody thought to go up here yet. <laughs> I'm going to take it. The, the house would be so looted. Um, <laughs> also, like that the town prospered because of the legend of the Brittany. Yeah, that's silly. I was like, what are you, you, you dug it up and you took yeah, it away. It's not there anymore. It's not there. It's gone. Director J. Lee Thompson, Cabo Blanco is the third of nine films Thompson and Bronson would work on together. Prior to this movie, they had made St. Ives and the White Buffalo. And after this picture, they made Ten to Midnight, The Evil That Men Do, Murphy's Law, Death Wish for the Crackdown, Messenger of Death, and Kinjite, Forbidden Subjects. John Huston was considered briefly to direct. Thompson also directed Guns of the Navarone, a couple of the Planet of the Apes sequels, and Happy Birthday to Me later this year. Story credit for Victor Andres Catena, he wrote A Fistful of Dollars. Uh, the other story credit goes to Jaime Comas Gill, who also wrote Fistful of Dollars, so they wrote that together. Uh, screenplay writer Morton S. Fine wrote for the I Spy TV series and has character credits for the awful movie reboot. Music here was from Jerry Goldsmith, Richard's favorite composer. Yeah. He did the I, music. I love the score. Yeah, the music yeah. was fun. Um, uh, he did the music for our Patreon review of The Ballad of Cable Hogue last year. Uh, and he also, I just noticed, scored the Casino Royale episode of Climax, the very first mm. James Bond adaptation. Yeah, he. I mean, obviously, with Star Trek, he did a lot of TV. Yeah. Uh, he scored Patton, Planet of the Apes. Chinatown, The Omen, Capricorn One, Star Trek TMP. Too many titles to go over, really. Yeah, all, all Joe Dante stuff. Yeah. Uh, cinematographer Alex Phillips Jr., uh, he was later DP on The Devil's Reign. Do you remember The Devil's Reign? <laughs> With oh. William Shatner and all the oh, melting yeah, yeah, people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. that was great. <laughs> uh, he also uh, he was also the DP on Fade to Black last year. Uh, later this season, we'll see him lens Demonoid Messenger of Death, not to be confused with the Thompson Bronson film Messenger of Death in 88, and High Risk. And still later, he'll work on King Solomon's Mines, Firewalker, and Born in East L.A. I do love King Solomon's Mines. Editor Michael F. Anderson, he edited several of the Thompson Bronson films, including the previous two, St. Ives and The White Buffalo, but went on to mostly TV editing, though he did also cut The Sphinx for us this season, which is only three episodes away. Can't wait. <laughs> Anything ancient Egypt stuff, like I get really excited. Charles Bronson played Gifford Hoyt. <laughs> Gifford. Gifford Hoyt. It's been making me crazy this whole episode. I know. You're so obnoxious. Frank Gifford. Paul Newman and Steve McQueen were considered for this role. We had Bronson in Borderline last year, and he's in The Great Escape, Magnificent Seven, Once Upon a Time in the West, a bunch of the Death Wish movies. Maybe all of them. <laughs> all of them except for the Bruce Willis one. Yeah. I think he's highly miscast in this movie. I haven't seen him properly cast yet <laughs> well i'm not talking about any of his other movies i'm just saying he did not fit this role for me at he's all. not a bogey type for sure no, yeah. no i i could see paul newman working oh sure yeah, yeah. paul yeah. newman would be great here yeah this definitely needed a a steadier hand to get that everyone comes to rick's yeah. kind of vibe well and and being a little just more appealing like all these ladies liked him too yeah Jason Robards played Gunther Beckdorf. Uh, George Kennedy was apparently approached for this role, hmm. but was not keen on shooting on location in Mexico or playing a Nazi two years in a row, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rex Harrison, Max von Sydow, and Peter Ustinov were also considered. I, I would have liked to see Max. Yeah, I agree. I think Max von Sydow. Actually, yeah. I like Peter Ustinov for that a lot, too. Uh, this is our fourth title from Robards after The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Raise the Titanic, and Melvin and Howard, and they seem to be getting worse as we go. <laughs> uh, he'll be back later this season as President Ulysses S. Grant in The Legend of the Lone Ranger. And I guess I should always mention A Thousand Clowns in Magnolia, which are, in my opinion, his best work. Dominique Sanda played 
Mary Claire Alessandri, though the role was written with her in mind, Genevieve Bujold and Isabel Ajani were both considered for the role. I am unfortunately unfamiliar with much of Sandus' credits, as they are largely French titles that I have not seen. Fernando Ray played Police Captain Toretto. Orson Welles was apparently up for this role. <laughs> what? Interesting. I, I, I really wanted him to... Now, I really want him to have done that, but also have been playing a Peruvian yeah. local oh, yeah. since he had Charlton Heston playing a Mexican yeah. in this movie. Perfect. Uh, Ray was in a bunch of Luis Buñuel films, Tristana, That Obscure Object of Desire, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. He was also Elaine Charnier in The French Connection. Simon McCorkendale was Lewis Clarkson. He's Philip Fitzroyce in Jaws 3D. Mm-hmm. I could tell as soon as he started talking that he was in the running for Bond at some point, and it looks like he made the shortlist after Roger Moore under Dalton and Brosnan, but obviously he, w- he didn't get the call. He's probably best known for his recurring characters on Falcon Crest or the medical drama Casualty, or as the lead of Manimal, a short-lived <laughs> series about a man who fights crimes by turning into animals. We'll see him next in The Sword and the Sorcerer for 1982. Camilla Sparve played Hera. She's Coco Duquette in Murderer's Row, and she starred opposite Robert Redford in Downhill Racer. James Booth played John Baker. We just had him as record producer Paul Rossini in The Jazz Singer, and he'll be back as Velasquez later this year for Zorro the Gay Blade. Clifton James played Lorimer in some version of this film that we didn't get to see. He's Carr in Cool Hand Luke. He's a sheriff and Superman later this season. And for us, he is most beloved for his portrayal of redneck sheriff J.W. Pepper in Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun, the first two Roger Moore Bond films. He also appeared as Corrigan in Juggernaut alongside Simon McCorkendale. That was Mm -hmm. McCorkendale's first film. Unfortunately, all of his scenes are missing from this cut. And even more, unfortunately, Mr. James just recently passed away in 2017. I actually kind of like this movie. I would rather see the two-hour cut of it because I want to understand the story a little bit better and see what was left out. Yeah, I think that this movie, it, it had the bones of what could have been a good story. Like, I, I I think going back and you relaying it all, like, it sounds very cohesive, but the movie itself didn't really come together quite that way. Sure. Um, I mean, we still asked a lot of questions, even though it sounded more cohesive as you went through it. Yeah. And I just think that that's like indicative of what the reality of it was. It's like it's a decent it's a decent story of 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 like, you know, a little bit of a mystery, a little bit of a um, the different threads could have been more capably woven together. Yeah. Yeah. And it's everything. I, I felt like everything about this movie felt sloppy to me like it, it to me I, I i know you thought the camera work was interesting it feels sloppy to me i i think the editing felt sloppy i think that the overall the story was just a little bungled and i feel bad for the editor because obviously they had a finished movie that got totally fucked when they said take yeah. a half an hour like take a quarter of this movie and throw it in the trash and you have to try and make your movie make sense still right that's gonna throw everything into disarray right. automatically. And, and in a movie where there's so many little like plot things that have to like come together uh, come together and reveal themselves over time that's uh, that's probably a really hard cut to make yeah. i get that but i think the results the one that we watched it just doesn't work i my my big thing is uh and i know like they didn't want the comparisons to casablanca but i'm making them in like the first i would say less than 10 minutes of casablanca Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Casablanca, Rick is handed the letters of transit, the big MacGuffin of where are these things? Yeah. He's given to them, given them by Peter Lorre. I need you to hide this. People are looking for it. There's the plot. People are going to come looking for this thing. Yeah. This movie, I marked it. It's the 30 minute mark that we actually get. People are looking for this ship because there's something on it. Like we have, we start off with people looking for a ship. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah, she doesn't say twenty-two million in yeah, gold until it, we we just get people who are looking f- to salvage a ship. It's like okay, but then we get this other character who comes in and is arrested, and then and and then they says she's looking for a guy, and then Gif who comes in who just seems to be running a bar doesn't seem to want to do anything. Yeah, like he has no no real motivation until she gets there. Right, 
And even then, you guys are confused why he's so willing to help her. exactly. Because she's just a random person. But to me, it seems like they... I thought they clearly had a, a previous relationship because he takes her up to a room and she's like, yes, hotelier, come into my room with me. I'm going to take a shower and walk out of it naked and talk to you about, oh, where did you get this new name that you're going by? Like, it just seemed like they were way too, like, comfortable with each other to have not come from some we sort get, of a... But at no point do we get any backstory of that's their true. relationship. So I feel but like... But then Casablanca does a similar thing, you know, uh, I mean... We, I think they at least say more blatantly that that Bogey and Bergman had a past, but yeah. they they don't go very in depth could, beyond. Uh, we'll I always could have, have used Paris just a line. You get a whole flashback, and <laughs> you get like a like a ten minute flashback. Not really. All I needed even was a line like, "Why did you leave me?" You know, like mm-hmm. anything that indicated for sure that they knew each other prior to this moment. Yeah, but I, we get none of that. It's on the cutting room floor, is where that is. Maybe. Maybe it's not true. Maybe it's wrapped up in squid tentacles <laughs> on the cutting room floor. Man, I would love to put the put this movie back together and have a giant squid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it it does seem really interesting to me now if there was a giant squid killing these people and that it, that that's what destroyed the diving bell and it wasn't uh these weird ninja divers that just show up did just appear magically when when needed they're proximity divers yeah and and because even like if you're looking for stuff to cut cut the plot line of that guy getting killed by looking for oysters yeah you could cut both of those scenes with that guy and it doesn't change anything yeah it's like that 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 was a great thing to cut but you left it in you left it in yeah (laughs) i guess to add some like what is that is that is that pathos when you're like, no, not the oyster guy who just not wanted a better man. life. The old man who didn't want to be a burden on anybody. <laughs> I'm going to give it a thumbs up. <laughs> okay. I think you might be on your own on that one. I'm not giving it a thumbs up. I, I also will not be giving it a thumbs up. Um, am I giving it a thumbs up? Yeah, I am. I enjoyed Do it. it. I, I like the performances from everybody, uh, even the shitty German accent. I just like Jason Robards. You know what I did really like about this movie? The color. Like, it was beautiful. It yeah. was super vivid, really nice print. Yeah. Like, it, it was surprising. I think the weird effect of going black and white and transitioning to color is kind of weird and unnecessary. Well, but, it's funny, too. But the color is so beautiful yeah when we talked about it for the mirror cracked how it starts in black and white and then we made the point that whenever a movie starts in black and white and then turns color that the color always looks like shit yeah because it's just like oh well now now it just looks kind of plain but it's interesting when you do black and white with high contrast and then we said except for like wizard of oz if you go crazy with the color and it's vivid yeah you Mm -hmm. know craziness everywhere and i think this movie pulls it off completely when it when it does that fade from black and white to color it's like beautiful blue water and blue yeah. skies. To be and fair, green. I don't think their black and white footage looked at, as good as no, like, the mirror cracks. So I think not. that's part of the reason yeah, that's for true. The, the, that's the, true. the color was just better. <laughs> but we only get like four seconds yeah. of black and white in this movie. <laughs> well, and and I'm I, I'm curious why, um, with with such a quality transfer and Kino Lorber who does like good releases, yeah, why they didn't get the full or maybe I don't know if it even survives. Full, yeah, that, yeah, that I be. think that's the problem. But I I would have expected them to not even bother releasing the mangled cut of it mm-hmm. un- un- unless they're confident that the other one will never surface. Yeah. But I would love to see the longer version of it to see the original edit as planned. It's Heaven's Gate all over again. I feel like the reason that it got cut though as much as it did is because even in 81, I think Bronson was getting to be kind of a, a lower B-list joke character actor. Mm. Um, like, I think we had the line earlier for Borderline where uh, somebody was going to direct it. And then when they swapped out the lead actor yeah. for Charles Bronson, they were like, fuck that. I don't want to direct a Charles Bronson movie. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think at the point that he didn't have the same respect that he was garnering in like the 60s yeah. and 70s. I, I I'm I'm with you on this. Like I think this movie has a ton had a ton of potential. I think that you needed to recast some of these main characters, yeah. and I think you needed to not skimp on the story threads. And you might have had a decent movie here. I wonder if it bothers all these like old British actors that they constantly have to play Nazis and stuff. Like yeah. obviously Jason Robards isn't British, but um, like that 
you know, like for in the formula or whatever, that you, right, you right, have right. like the Gilgood character is always going to be a Nazi. <laughs> Uh, for when, when for when you have big reveals like this, like of the parrot, for me the parrot has to be more central to the film. It and, can't just be in in the background for most of it. Yeah, or like like ha- have more scenes where maybe it's walking across the bar, and then and people are like, oh, you know, there's the parrot walking across the bar. Um, because again, referencing Casablanca, because Rick hides it in the piano, and the piano's always in in the shot because yeah. Sam's always on the piano. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like you know, it's always right there. The thing you're looking, they're looking for, is always right there in the in the spotlight. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's the hide in plain sight kind of thing you want. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. So I also wanted to bring up the uh, the season of Archer Danger Island. Okay. I feel took a lot of inspiration from this. From Cabo Blanco specifically. I, I really like having watched this. I was like, oh man, I got such Danger Island vibes. All right. Now because, I now I need to watch it because I think I missed that whole yeah, season. Yeah, I haven't watched that uh, season. Yeah, because it's. It's about a, like a ragtag guy played by Archer, and there's a parrot that that uh, the guy who Lucky Lucky Yates who does the Krieger voice, yeah, um, does the voice of just this parrot who just <laughs> talks like a normal person, like it's nice. not not doing parrot voice, yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> and so I really feel like that's part of this. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, Richard, what do you think in Letterboxd wise? Um, I I have it at number six. So that puts it below Underground Aces, but above Blood Beach. Okay. I have it at number six, but it is below Windwalker and above Blood Beach. I have it at number four. It is under Fear No Evil and above Underground Aces. <laughs> it's above Underground Aces? For me, yeah. Cabo Blanco, I thought, was better. I would rather watch Cabo Blanco again than watch uh, Underground Aces again. I'm good. Um, Yeah. I think that's everything for Cabo Blanco. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can find a button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also, search for Vintage Video Podcast on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Fort Apache the Bronx, which IMDb describes like so. In New York City, South Bronx's main police precinct is nicknamed Fort Apache by its employees who feel like troopers surrounded by hostiles in a Wild West isolated outpost. We leave you now with the trailer for Fort Apache the Bronx. They call it Fort Apache. ABC television calls it shattering. It must be seen. New York Daily News calls it a knockout, breathlessly exciting. And Vincent Canby, New York Times calls it shocking, entertaining, and very moving. Paul Newman is terrific. Fort Apache, the Bronx. The fuse has been lit. From 20th Century Fox, rated R.